We're living in times of scarcity in industrial metals. Different markets require different rules, <laughs> right? You know, this is not like the last 10, 12 years of the metals complex, which has been characterized by, I mean, basically slowing consumption growth out of China, overproduction, thanks to the, the last price boom. We haven't had to worry about genuine scarcity on metal markets in this way for a long time. And when you get scarcity, remember, the value of one ton to me as a trader is probably worth more in the physical supply chain than it is in the financial supply chain. So scarcity will keep LME stocks alive because it has to compete with that genuine demand for metal out there. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building Smarter Markets be the antidote? Welcome back to Systems at Risk on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at ABEX Technologies. Our guest today is Andy Holm, Senior Metals Columnist at Thomson Reuters. We'll be discussing the turmoil in the LME nickel market this year and what it may mean for the broader metals markets and the energy transition. Hello, Andy. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Hey, Dave. Thanks very much for having me. Very glad to. Uh, you've been reporting pretty extensively on the turmoil in the LME nickel market this year which included the suspension of trading and the cancellation of trades as nickel's prices spiked to $100,000 a ton after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm very glad that you're here to share that reporting and your perspective with us. But for those of our listeners who are less familiar with what happened, would you start us off today by sharing the short version of that story? Yeah, I mean, what we do actually is we go back to the start of this year and nickel has already been on a bull run. Yeah, it's on a tear. And why is it on a tear? Because LME stocks, exchange stocks are disappearing. There's this kind of, uh, I get it why you can sort of like chase for available units going on, right? In this context, probably not the best time to have a major short position in this market, but there is a major short position sitting in the nickel market. It is held by Mr. Shang, who is chairman of Xingshan Industrial Enterprises, a huge stainless steel producer based in China, operating in Indonesia. Mr. Shang is convinced that prices are going to go lower, partly because, I mean, he is himself sort of like bringing on more nickel production, or his group is. This is the backdrop. We have a tight market, stocks disappearing, huge short position in the market. What could possibly go wrong? Yes, exactly what could possibly go wrong. Russia decided to go on what it calls its special military operation in Ukraine. Russia itself produces about 7 8% of the world production. Panic. Suddenly, we've got a tight market. And we look like we could be losing supply from one of the major producers in the world, yeah? And a huge supplier to the European marketplace. In the event, there were no sanctions. But you can imagine what happened to this price, right? It went stratospheric. March, Friday the 4th, price closes $30,000 per tonne on the London Metal Exchange. By sort of Monday, we are at, we've already gone to $50,000 and it settles about $48,000, right? This is a huge problem for anyone holding a short position. You now need to pay your margin calls. The margin calls are, of course, immense. The positions are immense and the price movement has been phenomenal, right? There's a scramble sort of like to, to sort of make sure the money arrives in London at the right time. There's a deferral by the LME of settlement for one day. 
What could possibly go wrong? We start the next morning, that price goes up to $100,000. Of course, if anyone was struggling to meet their margin calls at $48,000, it's now probably sort of like double the pain, right? Long story short, enemy decides to suspend the market, fearing a default, let's call it for what it is, and cancels trades quite correctly. So there we are. It takes us uh, six days of suspension, six days of stop-start to get the thing going again, and we are limping onwards. That's where we are today, Dave. And, you know, in these situations, you summed up very eloquently what happened in this particular situation. And often when we see something like this, there's the, the things that triggered the particular event. And then there are all the other things that created the vulnerability in which this type of event could occur. And I was curious, in your view, is that true in this case? And what went wrong more structurally that allowed this perfect storm of short positions, tough margin calls to escalate the way it did? Let's kind of put nickel just for a moment into a, a little bit of a wider context here, because it's not just nickel that's turned wild in the last year. The LME's tin contract went super wild at the start of 2021, with extraordinary premiums being paid across the time spreads. Copper had to be restrained in October by the enemy, which also intervened in that market. So what we've been seeing in industrial metals is essentially a draw on available metal right across the Western supply chains. This is part COVID recovery, but this is also the way COVID has itself impacted production. Yeah, so it's kind of the worst of all possible worlds for metal supply chains. Then you can throw in logistics problems, getting metal from sort of like point, you know, from, from say China to the West Coast of, uh, of the States or back to the other way. Container rates have gone uh, also sort of like a stratospheric. So it, all these supply chains, all these metallic supply chains have been really struggling for seven or eight months. And it was Nichols' turn to some extent. What changed the specifics around this was what we think is the size of the short positions that had been accumulated, right? Relative to the size of the market. Now, I cannot sit here and tell you today, oh, this is exactly how much he was sitting on in terms of a short position. We can tell just from the, the way the price reacted how large that was. And there may well have been parallel short positions, you know. He may not have been the only guy who was kind of uh, on betting on the price going down. So you, you have this kind of like a combination of supply chain pressures, which are real. They're out there in the physical world. This is where LME stocks have been disappearing. These massive short positions. But we've got one other very nickel-specific little kink in the story, if you like, Dave, right? So the LME is a delivery-driven commodity market, right? You sell forward. The assumption is you will deliver your metal or you will buy back your position or you will roll your position. The LME is also a curious market. It's not standardized futures. You can trade any day between now and three months forwards. That means you have a daily rolling prompt date, which means that if you're short, you can get caught daily. And, of course, you could deliver nickel, couldn't you? It's a physical delivery option, not for Mr. Shang and not for his company. The LME only accepts a certain type of nickel for delivery. We call it class one nickel. That's 99.9% .9 pure nickel. It's close to metal as you can get. You know, Singshan is a huge nickel producer, the biggest now nickel producer in the world out of its Indonesian mines, right? But it does not produce one ton of that sort of nickel. Yeah? It produces either sort of like stuff that's going to go straight into a stainless steel mill, always producing sort of what we call like nickel in a form that goes into electric batteries eventually. Yeah, none of it is enemy deliverable. Therefore, he had 
no physical delivery escape path from a short position. All he could do forever would be to roll it forward and try and manage that pain. So that's sometimes what can go wrong with physical delivery settlements, right? But Nickel has a specific problem. The contractors traded on the LME, and in Shanghai, by the way, it's not just the LME, is for a type of nickel that is no longer accounts for the bigger part of what's produced every year. It's probably now less than 50% and shrinking all the time. So that is the other dimension. Physical delivery in this case was simply not an option for a company that doesn't produce nickel in that form. So a very tight physical market and a futures market, which hasn't kept pace with the, the commercial market underlying it, it sounds like leading to these delivery problems. I'm so old and I've been doing this for so long, Dave, that I mean, I can actually, I'm probably the last guy standing and can still remember that the LME has had this problem before in 1988. Guess what? It suspended its nickel contract, which at that stage, I mean, it was all open outcry, you know, went up 50% in price in the space of one minute's open outcry trading. Market was suspended briefly for uh, less than a day and restarted again. And you know what everyone said at the time? We've got a problem with the specifications of this nickel contract, right? But they could not come to an agreement on a good delivery specification for other forms of nickel. So, you know, this problem is not new. This problem was exactly what caused the market suspension in 1988. So, yeah, we still haven't come up with that solution. Do you have thoughts on what makes the solution, the, the problem so intractable? In 88, that's a long time. The problem is only intractable. If your template, as it was then, by the way, was physical deliverability, right? So the arguments were about, say, we'll take something like ferro-nickel, which is a form of nickel that goes into stainless steel furnaces, right? And, of course, it's not deliverable against the enemy contract. So they were back then looking at making that deliverable. But ferro-nickel, I mean, it can vary from anything from 20% to 50% nickel content. Iron specs can be all over this, all over the place. So, as I said, long story short, much debate with the industry participating, with the LME participating. Do you think they could come to one sort of specification that would please everyone for ferro nickel? They just couldn't. But we now live in an age where you know even the LME is embracing the concept of cash settled futures contracts, benchmarked against third party assessments of the market. So the landscape has changed a lot. And from that point of view, it genuinely surprises me that, you know, exchanges haven't sort of like launched more products into this kind of increasingly disparate nickel market. And I'm really surprised the Chinese haven't done it, actually, because this is largely a Chinese trade, this uh, Indonesian sort of flow of materials into China. But again, no one has. We've all been left trying to price a global industry of this one contract and its very tight specifications. But it's doable. I mean, in principle, I mean, you know, I think people were already sort of like starting to look into whether you could price nickel sulfate, which is a battery material. Could you price sort of ferro nickel? The problem was, from what I know, they were devising contracts which would be based on a core contract in London called the LME nickel contract. So I think that the scope for like a greater creativity. Definitely. And you had brought up that even back in, you know, in 1988, they suspended trading in nickel. Now, in the more recent episode, that's happened this year, the LME suspended trading, but also canceled trades. And that created a lot of controversy, to say the least. Why do you think the LME chose to cancel trades? And what other options did they have at that point? Well, I mean, we are all awaiting with bated breath the, the promised forensic report into what happened, which is being uh, written as we speak by the London Metal Exchange. But pending that, yes, 
I can understand the genuine sense of shock that the LME would cancel as many trades as it did and sort of behave in the way that it did. So why would it do that? Let's speculate a little bit. What would scare it so much that it would be prepared to really rip up its, its free market rule book and behave, let's call it, by what it is, as a Chinese exchange? Well, I would suggest to you there was a genuine concern about a market default. And I'm not talking necessarily about the ultimate customer or customers here. Because this is a daily settled system, if you can't get your money to London in time, guess who picks up the bill? It's your broker. What if your broker is not a sort of multi-billion dollar capitalized company, but, you know, a much smaller operator? And then if that broker were to default, would that trigger a cascade default as it cascaded to other smaller players in the market? So my guess, Dave, and it can only be a guess, is they thought they could see the potential for what I would call a systemic credit collapse of LME membership and therefore the entire market. It's hard to think why else they took such drastic action. Yeah. So that's kind of my gut feel, but it's going to have to remain a gut until I see the, the report and you look at the report. We all look at the report that's coming out. It'll, it'll certainly be fascinating reading. And when thinking about this, you know, even if it was the, the best decision in a bad situation and the report will let us uh, give us more information on that. What do you think could be some of the longer term ramifications of this decision and people's confidence in the market? Yeah, you know, again, we kind of sort of got to look at the culture of the, the LME, which has been here before, not just in nickel, uh, but in other markets. The culture is one of, of laissez-faire capitalism, that the market, which is actually populated by large professional players, no widows and orphans on the London Metal Exchange, that the market will ultimately resolve itself. Occasional aberrations, as they love to call it on the enemy, occasional aberrations will require the intervention of the London Metal Exchange, right? As I said, this is a culture. So automatically, if you have that culture, by the time you've intervened, something bad has already tended to have happened. The enemy is against what we would expect we call maybe preemptive regulatory action. It's not in the culture. It is by the very, every time the enemy has been called in, something bad has already happened. So, you know, that's one problem. The other problem here is visibility. Yeah. The enemy has sort of like, without, you know, has explicitly said that, I mean, it only had partial information on what was going on in the nickel market. And I think that's probably true. You know, the, the enemy ecosystem is kind of best thought of as a pyramid of, of risk trading and a pyramid of netting off of that risk. What you see on the LME has been distilled multiple times by the time it's hedged across a, a trading ring, right? The bottom of the pyramid are, are, are the OTC deals, the over-the-counter deals. That could be between, between me and my bank, but it could be between me as a metals producer and the guy buying my metal down the road, yeah? You don't know. All this goes into the mix, and it gets distilled down, gets distilled down, right? So the LME has perfect vision on a very small screen. <laughs> so I think that that has been a, a, a well-known problem uh, on the LME for 15, 20 years, every time they've attempted to extend their supervision into the OTC world. Of course, the members and the users of the market have pushed back, right? So what's going to change? Some stuff has already changed. What's already changed, right? As part of their emergency measures, the LME has put price limits on all of its deliverable contracts. Previously, unthinkable on the free market LME, right? By the way, discussed several times and rejected out of hand as a sort of brutal betrayal of what the whole market's about. 
price limits. We also now have what we call backwardation limits. This is how much I can charge you for rolling your short position over one day. Yeah. Again, permanent backwardation limits have previously been deemed unacceptable by the users of that market. They're now in place. I do not expect either of those two things to go away anytime soon. Now, the really big change and the one that I think will be fascinating to watch play out, the LME is calling for greater powers to see what's happening in OTC trading if it's connected to the London Metal Exchange, right? This is kind of fairly unprecedented for the enemy and for many other sort of markets, by the way. You know, this is not about saying, I want to see what you're trading here. I want to see what your entire position is with your bank as a broker. That confidential information you wouldn't normally share with anyone, right? Apart from the other counterparty. So they want to go down this route. I think they have a very powerful lever. If they can say, look, guys, we would have done more. We could have been raising margins, but we simply could not see through the opaque structures that some of you placed around this man's position, right? But I mean, expect considerable pushback as well. I mean, you know, how far do you want to go? I mean, do you want to go and see what I'm selling as a producer of wire rod to the guy down the road? Do I have to show you my contract? You know, it's controversial. Why would I if I'm a privately owned company? So I think that's the big battleground that we're going to see. As I said, price controls, backwardation limits, I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon. Much more controlled marketplace from that point of view. In the same way, the, the Chinese do the same on their commodity markets. But this question, this question, can I see, if I'm the regulator, can I see everything in a big bank like JP Morgan or in a big bank like Goldman Sachs? Am I allowed to? Should I? Is it right? Well, after nickel, there's probably a lot less resistance to that concept than there was before the nickel blow up, right? Right. And when you're, when you're thinking about you know, how to learn from the mistakes, how to prevent this from happening again. You know, there, you've been wonderful in detailing quite a number of steps that have been taken, some still coming forward, like perhaps more transparency, perhaps better contract specifications. You know, if you were to pick, if you could change things uh, the way you'd like or the way you think would be most effective, what do you think would help prevent a situation like this from happening again? I mean, quite evidently, if you had greater transparency at a, regular, a regulatory level, right? I mean, they would have seen more. They could have seen into what I call the shadows, maybe. But, you know, I also have this question, Dave. I've been covering this market a long time. I've seen compliance at the LME when I started was sort of, I think it was the secretary of the company. And he, there wasn't a compliance function at the LME, right? Uh, compliance was when things went wrong. Principles of the market. The principal broker sat down and hammered out this through the, the board meeting. The board was, full, it was populated by those guys, right? I've then seen, we've all seen the growth of compliance, right? Quite rightly so. We want to stop malfeasance in, in all markets. We want them to be level playing fields, right? We don't want people to be ripped off or put out of business. But I question, say, so I'm going to take the LME as an example here, right? So it blew up. It also had its copper scandal in the 1990s, the Sumitomo scandal. And, uh, you know, they, they sent someone in from the Treasury of the, of the United Kingdom to write the rule book, which is pretty much the rule book we still have now. And he kind of expanded it to sort of like having a sliding scale of sort of like controlling dominant longs, you know, of making sure people weren't abusing the, 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 the positions that they had, right? And that all still happens, right? And in fact, it's been built up, built out, built, built out, built out. I worry that we have lost what I would, I think what they, they say in the military, the human angle of this, the human intelligence. Is compliance just making sure that my spreadsheets are all like nicely like, uh, ticked off and all that? 
Or does someone sometimes need to step back and say, do you know what? There's a bigger picture going on here, and I can't see it. I know I can't see it. I know I can't see it all. I worry that we have lost that on the London Metal Exchange. You know, I'm going to go back to the non-compliant days of the 1980s and 1990s. You would have a chairman or maybe a chief executive who spent most of their time socializing with the brokers, the very market they were regulating, right? This would give a modern-day regulator the heebie-jeebies even thinking about it. But you know what? They got a lot of human intelligence that way. They heard stuff very early. If people were worried about positions in the market, this is not a mean, sort of like I mean, a modern-day compliance sort of concept, but it sort of worked in its own way. Can we get back human intelligence into market compliance? Yeah, without compromising, obviously, sort of you know, objectivity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. One thing that's the one that I kind of wonder about. Oh, it's a really interesting point. They always say, right? You you manage what you measure. And when it comes to risk, you're only managing the risk of what you measure. And if you're not out there having the human intelligence, understanding the feel of the market, and knowing all the things that your metrics and your spreadsheets aren't picking up, mm. that, that leaves a big hole. And who does that in an organization? How, how do you structure that flow of information? I don't know. But you asked me one thing. I think we've lost human intelligence at a compliance function. I mean, Bloomberg were reporting about this nickel position publicly in, I think, February this year, right? So once it's reached that, that sort of like, I mean, sort of public platform, there's no secret here in the market. You know, I mean, if there were a secret, we're, we're all now in the secret. I wonder whether anyone at the LME or above as a regulator said, you know what, I can see what I can see and I'm not happy about how that tallies with what Bloomberg are saying or what Reuters then went on to say. Who fills that gap? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, the human element. The human, human intelligence. I mean, you know, and also, you know, bear in yeah. mind that, I mean, it is a very sort of uh, opaque world out there, particularly in something like industrial metal chains. We have very little data, hard data, say, relative to the energy sector. The importance of human intelligence is very high under those circumstances when you have a very poor statistical landscape around you, right? And I imagine this, of course, isn't just the nickel market. Um, you know, it happened this time in the nickel market, but a lot of what you've been describing isn't specific to the nickel market. And I think a number of the points you're raising probably apply more broadly across the metals market. You brought up the, you know, some of the things that have happened in tin and in aluminum. Is that same same notion, the human intelligence element, something that we should be doing across all these markets to make them more resilient, in your opinion? Or is that uh, more nickel specific? The hardware of resilience comes from, uh, you know, the price limits, the backwardation limits that the LME has put in. But yes, I think it could apply to all of it must apply to all markets and particularly commodity markets. I think when a regulator looking at the trading that they can see must know that, I mean, it's all like but the tip of a much larger OTC iceberg, right? So given that, how, how, do you, you know, how do you try and sort of like at least sketch the picture or the part of the picture that you can't see? And yes, I mean, I do think, I mean, uh, you know, this is becoming more acute because, you know, when there's a million tons of metal freely floating around the world in recession and can't, can't use this stuff, the possibility of these, I mean, something like nickel happening is very remote, right? Part of the reason is that there's very little nickel around, but there's very little copper around. There's very little tin around at the moment. So we're living in times of scarcity in industrial metals. You know, different markets require different rules. 
<laughs> right? You know, this is not like the last 10, 12 years of the, uh, of the metals complex, which has been characterized by, I mean, basically slowing consumption growth out of China, overproduction, thanks to the, the last price boom. We haven't had to worry about genuine scarcity on metal markets in this way for a long time. And when you get scarcity, remember, the value of one ton to me as a trader is probably worth more in the physical supply chain than it is in the financial supply chain. So scarcity will keep LME stocks alive because it has to compete with that genuine demand for metal out there. And uh, this may be an unfair question, but uh, which market do you think is the, the next one that has the greatest potential to, to show vulnerability and have some sort of disruption? Oh, that's easy. I mean, look, we, we can go to the list here because this is a generic cross-metals issue. Right. Look at zinc right now, right? The zinc stocks are sort of like, I mean, are fairly bombed out on the LME. I think we're down to about sort of 85,000 tons, half of it scheduled to leave. Right? LME spreads are sort of like now starting to re-tighten, yeah? Metal should be on its way from China to help sort of like fill the Western supply gaps, which have been corrected by European smelters closing. But guess what? Everyone's struggling to get the shipping containers to move across the Atlantic to, to deliver anywhere, right? Aluminium, same thing. European smelters are powering down, can't live with these sort of European power prices. Guess what? LME stocks are being raided to fill in the, the gaps in the physical supply chain, yeah? LME spread's still relaxed there. Maybe not for long. We'll see. This is happening, as I said, across the metallic board. Look beyond the LME day. Look what's happening to lithium pricing. Look what's happening to cobalt pricing. Right? This is a cross-metallic story. Everything is, is in short supply. Or if we have got it, it's sitting in the wrong part of the world relative to where we really need it. I mean, so I do see this as a cross theme. And, and, and therefore, that leaves any physically deliverable contract vulnerable to what happened to nickel. Or you need someone to have a mass that sort of like, I mean, short position with an inability to deliver metal. And here you go again, which is why I think the enemy is going to keep those restraints on, if you like, the price and the backwardation restraints. Right. And when we look at, you know, the, the trends in these markets, there's been the recovery from COVID, which is a little bit more of a short term, the supply disruptions, the pickup in demand. But when you, we look at many of these metals, you know, we look at the transition to a low carbon energy system is going to make our energy supply much more reliant on our metal supply. We need massive amounts of metals to support the generation, the distribution, the storage of electricity. And this includes copper, aluminum, nickel, platinum, palladium, and as you said, lithium and cobalt. We need all these metals and more to decarbonize. And it, I was going to ask, are these metals markets up to this challenge? And it sounds like not yet. Well, it, you know, in many ways, I mean, sort of the first victim of this, of the transition, if you like, was nickel, right? Why are all those stocks disappearing at the back end of last year? You know, this market, nickel's been sort of patting itself on the back for four or five years about how it's going to have a great sort of part in the, uh, the green metals transition, right? They just forgot to build enough uh, sort of like processing plants there. Yeah? So what you saw, I mean, particularly in the Western market, you know, which are not part of that Indonesian-China flow of materials, you saw a sudden, hold on, guys, you know, we're building all these various gigafactories here. They haven't got any nickel. So where can we get the nickel from in the right form? Hey, that stuff in the LME is going to do just fine, right? So this is really what sparked the get it while you can sort of attitude. So like, yeah, man, these guys have got the right sort of nickel that we can like feed through a new battery plant. So yeah, for me, that's the first early warning side, right? I mean, it came 
absolutely, I, I could, for the first time, that EV demand became tangible in nickel, which has been dominated by stainless steel. Everyone's been talking about it for ages, but last year is when it became tangible. And you're quite right. What on earth does this mean going forward? I mean, we have, I think, a collectively, yeah, a big minerals problem here. There's been a lot of talk about sort of what this means for the, the, the metal sector. As I said, a lot of like, um, you know, mutual clapping on the back. It's going to be good times ahead, guys. But you look at something like copper. I mean, mining capex hasn't gone up recently. It started to go up. You know, but everyone was so burnt after the last cycle that they behaved exactly what you'd expect any copper producer to do or any other metal producer, right? Well, we got burned last time. The shareholders hated us, so we're not going to rush into the next one just in case we get burned again, right? But I'm a believer that this is not just another cycle that we're going to go into. I'm a big believer that this is a, a very metals-intensive cycle that we're going into, right? And frankly, the investment in new mines is already lagging behind. I mean... That's what every price is telling you, yeah? Price of lithium is telling you we have not got enough material for what we need right now, Dave. Price of nickel, even more extremely, though. Well, you know, it's, bear in mind, even after we started trading, and nickel is still priced above $30,000 per tonne. Historically, that's extreme, right? They're all screaming the same thing, bring us more supply. Here's the problem, though, right? Most of the supply that can be scaled up easily is Chinese. We all now have a problem with Chinese supply, right? And so the, the critical materials world, right? Everyone wants to sort of like decouple as much as we can, right? So we're going to have to have more of our own supply. Here's the other thing. No one wants to have a new mine in their back garden or in their backyard, right? A great example we had was Rio Tinto. It's kind of been working uh, on a, a, a giant lithium mine down in Serbia. Yeah, I mean, a really big project, right? It's had a halted after the, uh, the violent demonstrations which were playing out every weekend for months on end across Serbia. You want to go green, people, but you can't go green without the mine, but you don't want to have the mine, right? And you're seeing this play out all over the world. I mean, uh, there's many great examples in the United States at the moment for the Biden administration giving it a great talk about the green transition, guys, whilst at the same time, the same administration is cancelling permits for new mines, right? Everyone has this problem, and I cannot see any short-term resolution of this, and I cannot see how, let's put it this way, metal supply chains physically are going to remain stressed for the foreseeable future, right? Really, we've got to the stage in some of these markets, like tin, when they just almost ran out last year, we almost need a recessionary vibe just to allow production to sort. Can we just refill this, these pipelines a little bit, guys? You know, physical buyers out in the real world are paying huge premiums over and above LME prices just to get physical metal. So you're absolutely spot on. If this is how the new metal cycle starts, I would just say, hold your seatbelts. Put your seatbelts on, guys. You know, hold, hold your arms, <laughs> whatever you need to do. It's going to be rough. Yeah, so we all got to hold on tight. But it gets worse, right? Because many of these metals are not only required to increase the electrification of our energy system, making an energy transition possible, but they also require a lot of electricity for their own production. How has the power crisis in Europe impacted the ability to supply these metals that we need? Yeah, great question. I, I like to call this, this the aluminium paradox because aluminium is just the best example of it. You know, it's going to play a vital role in the green transition. You know, it, it's what forms the battery packs in electric vehicles. It's also sort of like used in the packaging of uh, solar energy. And yet, 
it is a massive power user. This is not a, you don't roast aluminium, you pass a massive electrical current through alumina to get your metal. It's a derivative of electricity. It's the most extreme case, but all of them to some extent, you're right, sort of like are big power users in themselves. So let's look at Europe at the moment, right? We have structurally record high power prices at the moment for the obvious reason. Power prices were going up even before Russia decided to invade Ukraine, right? As Europe tries to sort of in accelerated double quick time reduce its dependency on Russian fossil fuels, the obvious has happened. I mean, you look at sort of baseload forward prices in Germany, record high, 23, 24, 25, as far as the eye can see. Net result of this is you are seeing aluminium smelters in Europe power down as we speak. West European production sort of has fallen to a multi-year low. East European production, by which I'm really talking about smelters in Slovakia, Slovenia, and uh, Montenegro, have powered down even faster. Actually, the Montenegro one has actually completely closed as a smelter. Many others are cushioned because they're either sort of geo geothermal power-based up in Iceland or maybe hydro power-based in Hydro. But yes, you're right. European production is actually falling at the moment due to the power crisis as smelters try and manage those margin pressures. This, of course, only increases the local price, the local premiums over and above the LME. There is very little short-term sort of solution to this other than sort of like basically an arbitrage window with Asia where, you know, we've even had the Chinese ship unwrought aluminium to Rotterdam the last couple of months, despite a 15% Chinese tax on exports, right? That just tells you how desperately tight Europe is. Zinc is following a, a similar pattern. We've had a one sort of bigger uh, smelter in uh, Italy has been mothballed due to high power prices, and everyone else is just trying to modulate their run rates around that peak pricing every day. Yeah, it really is trying to run sort of like with your, your legs tied together. So, Andy, you've spoken of a real dependence of Europe on metals from China and the not in my backyard challenges to increasing metals production at home. But energy security is now becoming metals security. How is Europe facing this challenge post the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Is this on the radar screen of European governments and the European Commission? Yeah, I mean, sort of, it is very much on the radar screen. European Union inevitably moves slowly, frustratingly so, given there are 27 voices that must play a part in this. But I would say the issue is absolutely recognized at now the highest level of the European Commission. You know, they're not idiots. They understand exactly that they need to sort of like they cannot go green and they cannot go green faster without thinking more about how they're going to get their, their green metal, as it were. Right. There's as always, there's a lot of sort of meetings, I, I suspect, taking place at Brussels. I have written that I think they are searching for an accelerator. What form could that take? Well, in the pandemic, they accelerated the rollout of uh, precursor plants there. What, what I mean by accelerating is Europe, European countries are bound by a very complex system of subsidies. Sort of like. So I'm not allowed to subsidize my industry because it's against European law, right? When they do an emergency measure, all the rules are off. Whatever you need to do, guys, to keep this, to build this plant here, or to this PPE plant in that in pandemic case, or whatever you need to do to keep that aluminium smelter operating, it's not inconceivable that they're looking at something like that. Because if they don't, it's very simple. These plants aren't going to reopen anytime soon. You know, the power prices have only gone up further since that Italian uh, zinc smelter closed, right? The only other option, you know, a US company uh, is leading the way in this Alcoa, 
which closed its Spanish aluminium smelter for two years, just saying it was impossible to operate under current power sort of structures. Yeah, it will come back in two years. It's going to be solar powered. But you know, there's only so much possibility sort of for doing that across the system as a whole, right? Yeah, it is really. I think I think this is one of those things that you know was not high on the you know the European Commission's agenda a year ago. I think is now very high straight after sort of like energy security, because it's related. Your ultimate best defense against Russia is not to buy any of its fossil fuels, right? To do that, you have to like accelerate your green transition. To do that, guess what? You have to get those metals in, right? In a competitive world when everyone else is trying to do the same. So I generally, I, I know that it has risen to a very t- near the top of the agenda there. We'll see what they do about it. Yeah, we will have to wait to see what they do. Now, before we wrap up, You've been reporting on the metals markets for a long time. And so I want to ask your perspective on what are we going to be seeing in these markets in coming years? And what do we need to be doing now to make these markets ready for what they're going to face? It may be that we have to now accept a world where availability cannot be taken for granted. Yeah, this concept that at a certain price, I can get my copper in my yard, wherever I am operating, when I want it, may simply not hold true. Given the various dislocations, the logistics issues across the world, that's a new sort of market. That's a new sort of, I mean, I I have been doing this a long time, as, as you pointed out. I mean, I have seen one or two markets individually go nuts, right? Because of very specific issues at the time. I've never seen them all go nuts together for a generic issue, which is one of scarcity. I mean, and scarcity into a cycle which is only going to need ever more metal, right? I don't really want to sort of say this, but the way I'm starting to think about this and the, what maybe the lesson from the LME is, is this bastion of free market trading, ripping up its rule book. You know, it's changed more rules in the space of like two days than it did in 20 years because, I mean, members wouldn't, you know, wouldn't accept price limits, wouldn't accept sort of like lending limits in their market. But here we are, greater governance, greater regulation, and, and if you like it, greater state intervention, right? You know, the Biden administration is now a major direct funder of metals projects, particularly in the critical mineral space. I suspect the European Union is going to go down that way. We are seeing metal markets being uh, politicized again. They may not be fully as free as we've got used to over the last 15, 20 years. Uh, Certainly the LME market, I suspect, is not going to operate on those old buccaneering sort of principles that we could do over the last last two decades, right? Look what happened. (laughs) Thanks again to Andy Holm, Senior Metals Columnist at Thomson Reuters. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week as we continue exploring our systems at risk. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. 
The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.